0: Welcome to the Innovation and Technology Management Seminar Series, hosted by the Engineering Management Program in the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. My name is Jeff Glass and I'm the Faculty Director for the Engineering Management Program. The purpose of our seminar series is to introduce engineers and scientists to various business and management concepts that they will find useful throughout their careers. Speakers represent a diverse array of industries from finance and information technology to materials processing and biotechnology. If you'd like to learn more about the Engineering Management Program at Duke, including these podcasts and any associated audiovisual materials that are sometimes available, please visit our website at memp.duke.edu. Thanks for your interest in our series, and please do not hesitate to contact us with suggestions or questions. Hello, we're happy to have Mr. Cason Copeland with us today for our seminar. Mr. Copeland is the Senior Director of Operations Excellence for the Sprint-Nextel Merger Integration Office. He holds a Civil and Environmental Engineering degree from Duke University and an MBA from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He also serves on several boards of directors including the Enterprise Center of Johnson County and the Kansas City Women's Business Center. Mr. Copeland is going to speak with us today about the first 10 plus years of his career including his experiences during both engineering and business graduate programs. He'll talk about his career path, his decision-making process at key points during his career, and give us a general framework for evaluating opportunities and maximizing professional effectiveness in a variety of industries and functions. We hope you enjoy the seminar.
1: My name is Casey Copeland. Graduated from Duke uh, in engineering, 1993. I was an undergrad in civil and environmental engineering. That was our department back then. We have a few of those. How many? How many people are civil engineers in here, or environmental? Oh, okay. How many mechanicals do we have? Okay. All right, little competition there. Electrical? Biomedical? Other? What's the, and what's, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the other? Computer science. Computer science, okay. Aeronautical. Uh, aeronautical. Chemical. Fantastic. Um, I'm hoping that you all have chosen to come to Duke and have chosen to come to this program because there's a realization out there that there is more to managing a successful engineering career than having an engineering degree. And what I'd like to do is take you through some of those steps, give you some examples from my past, how I've made some of the decisions I've made when I've faced uh, a few of the challenges and road bumps that have come along uh, in my career. So, Duke University, 93, civil engineering, lab rat, lab geek. There's a guy here named Professor J. Jeffrey Pierce. Is he still around? Yes. Dr. Pierce, I did some good research for him. um, And we were looking at... Basically, the transmission properties of substances through substrates, primarily looking at polymers and how those flowed through different types of porous media to try to come up with invasive barriers in an underground environment. Very technical, very engineering type. Said, you know what? I really like this stuff. I think I want to go into engineering. And did a lot of soul searching and said, I believe a master's is what I need. I looked at going into industry. I looked at going into consulting and said, I've got a good opportunity here got some strong uh, advice from the professors, applied to 11 engineering graduate programs, and ended up at University of Texas at Austin. And for two years, got my master's in engineering, also environmental engineering there. At that point, went on and got into engineering consulting with a firm called Environ International. They're based out of New Jersey, but they're a a small global, very niche risk assessment type of firm. Did that for about three or four years. Had a few life challenges, a few ahas uh, that came up and said, I'm going to go back to business school. Went back to business school, got into an executive development program at Sprint, and really transitioned from a pure engineering type of career into more of an engineering management and more of a global general management uh, type of career going forward. That's where I am. That's where I've been for the past seven years. Uh, In the future, we'll see. I'm not a company man. I'm not going to be in a large company for my entire career. The entrepreneurial bug at the age of 36 has finally bit me. It's maybe bit me a few years too late. But that's where I am right now and I'm doing some things here in the next couple of weeks to try to get uh, the next phase of my career kick started. I'll talk to you a little bit about all these different uh, decision points. So the first one was, coming out of undergrad, how much engineering education do you need? You want to be an engineer, you want to go do some design work. Do you need a master's degree in engineering? Do you need a PhD? Do you just need to go get a little business sense and and keep moving? The things to think about here are the level of education you need can be very dependent upon what type of engineering function uh, you want to do. I heard earlier that some of you folks are looking to go to Wall Street. Great, you don't need any further engineering education to do that. Some of you folks may want to go into theoretical research. You might need a PhD. When it comes to career advancement, that level of education becomes very important to your credibility, uh, from what I've seen. A lot of folks that go into pure research need PhDs from a credibility standpoint or even from a professional standpoint uh, to to do the type of work and generate the type of income and funding that they need to continue in that type of career. The other thing, too, is there's some industries, uh, generally speaking more on the electrical and biomedical sides, where – You're not really one of the game. You're not in the club unless you have a PhD. You need to figure this out. You need to figure out if you're going to stay in hardcore research, going to go in the middle, kind of in the product management or product uh, development side of the world, or go purely into business and make sure that the degree that you have and the level of education you have fits the type of path that you're on. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later in my uh, experiences in engineering and then in sprint and general management. The second piece, though, was when you go into engineering, do you want to go into consulting, or do you really want to go into hardcore industry-based engineering? And here are the distinctions that I see and that my friends have seen that I've stayed in touch with. Consultants, in general, they take a situation. They analyze it. They figure out a problem. They come up with a solution. They recommend it to a company who is paying them to do so, and then they generally hand it off and you go on to the next one. You become very adept at problem solving. You become very adept at selling your advice and selling your ideas. Whereas the folks that I knew that went to work directly for the GMs, the GEs, they tend to own a product. They say, I'm going to take this new device from start to finish, from design all the way through to production. So there is a distinction there between ownership of one specific thing versus the analysis of situations and selling that analysis to other folks. There's a distinction there, and it lies primarily in the consulting versus industry distinction. Generally, in consulting, you're going to be working on multiple things at once. When you get into industry, you're generally going to be assigned early on in your career a product line. So if you go to GE, you may be working on water systems or turbines or whatever it might be, and you'll stay within that focused area. In consulting, you generally have a little bit uh, more opportunity to work on several different projects at the same time, but to also work potentially in several different fields at the same time. In consulting, you also tend to be an individual contributor. You tend to matrix manage people across a project team and present your analysis to an organization if you're actually in industry in that organization, you're much more likely to have people reporting to you and do much more of the, uh, let's call it the the stereotypical reporting to your boss and handing that message down to your subordinates, so on and so forth. It's much more real-life people management versus project and matrix management. There's a real distinction there. And some people tend to be very comfortable in a direct report and uh, supervisor type of environment. Others don't like it. Others like flat environments where they're really managing themselves and they're an individual contributor. It's one of those things to consider. Think about it. Where do you work best? What, what are your real personal characteristics that lend you to choose one type of environment over the other? Last two, um, some folks, especially at your age, they want to see the world. They want to go get with a firm, for instance, like a GE or like an ExxonMobil. They may send you to far and remote areas. There's, generally speaking, a little bit more uh, ability if you get with a large multinational company to be assigned to an area, to a country, for a one, two, three-year period of time. You generally don't find those opportunities quite so frequently in consulting. So think, of, think about these decisions as you go and make your first leap out of this program and into uh, the next phase of your career. So here's what I did. I went to University of Texas at Austin. We had a co-op with a company called the Lower Colorado River Authority. Oil and gas exploration and production, electric power generation, basically your big utility. And since I was doing the environmental engineering program, uh, I was being funded uh, to take my classes at UT and work work at LCRA doing things like batch reactor studies. Take the data. Sample every four hours for four weeks straight, by the way. That's really fun, taking that 3 a.m. sample, especially in a town like Austin where there's too many distractions at 3 a.m., as it already is. Laboratory analysis. What we were basically doing is what you would see right here is a land farm with a control and an active side. We were looking at bioremediation of of hydrocarbon contaminated soils. So using indigenous organisms that live within the the either... um, substrate that is already there or live within uh, the actual confines of the soils, the contaminated soils you're putting there, putting the right nutrient balance, the right aeration models, even some genetically engineered microorganisms, and determining the best way to effectively degrade contaminants from soils without having to incinerate or landfill. This is actually a technique that's been uh, mastered over the last few years. It's low-tech, it's very inexpensive, And a lot of research has been done to figure out how to make it the most uh, efficient means necessary. Did this for a couple of years, wrote my thesis on it, and said, great. I thought that I wanted to be a hardcore engineer, and I've had enough. Two years, solid research. I want to get a little bit more into the, the commerce side of the engineering space. So, after my degree was over, I spent the next three or four years at a company called Environ. Environ is a classic engineering consulting type of company. So companies would come to us that had contamination problems. They were big ones. We worked with seven of the fortune 10 companies out there. Can't say their names. You know who they are because a lot of those cases end up going into litigation. A lot of them have multi-billion dollar settlements that you read about in the paper. This is what we did. We basically did a due diligence assessment approach with these companies to say, where your facilities contaminated? Once you do that and identify contamination at their facilities, you say, does this pose a risk to human health and the environment? That's where the engineering comes in. How do you do that? The general steps are, you have to have chemical release, chemical transformation, and transport modeling. For those of you in the environmental engineering field, this is groundwater hydrogeology. For those in the chemical engineering field, this is chemical transformation. TCE, breaks down to DCE, breaks down to PERC, so on and so forth. You have to know how chemicals are transformed before they hit the human health, uh, the human receptors that are actually going to ingest those chemicals. You go out and you do environmental sampling and you say, all right, what are the concentrations of the chemicals that are contaminating not only this facility, I keep hitting the other button, this facility or the human health receptors down the road? You have to have toxicologists come in and do assessments to say, Is the chemical here, whether it's benzene, whether it's arsenic, what type of actual response occurs when a human contacts that? These are generally done by EPA, NIH, uh, NCEA, other types of entities that develop what we call a dose response effect to say, if I'm exposed to one milligram per liter of benzene in water, is that going to hurt me or not? They give us those types of data that we run into our equations. And then we do an exposure assessment. What an exposure assessment basically is, is, it says we have a release. Air pollution hits a receptor, groundwater pollution hits a receptor either from groundwater uh, drinking wells. By the way, 50% of the United States gets its water supply from groundwater, which is why this is such a hot topic these days. Actually, volatilization of chemicals up through the soil from the groundwater into homes, into buildings, into basements. You take all the different ways that a human can contact contaminants. You can inhale them, either as gases or particulates. You can ingest them by drinking them through water. You actually, everybody in this room eats about five grams of soil per day. You get it from your hands. You get it from food. You get it from dust settling in the environment. If that contains certain types of contaminants, it does pose a human health risk. There's dermal absorption when you contact groundwater, contact soil, or other things that are contaminated. All of these are ways that chemicals get in your body. We look at that not only for the people working at the plants themselves, but also at the nearby receptors. And you come up with a risk assessment. And what a risk assessment says, your activities when you're living here, you're playing in your yard, you're running, your activities here when you're working at the plant for eight hours a day, they're producing this level of exposure at this type of concentration for these types of chemicals. What type of risk does it pose? And the US EPA has set criteria that said, you cannot be exposing either on-site workers or off-site receptors to a greater than one in a million incremental chance of cancer risk. We quantify it, and we say, the contamination at this plant either does or does not fall above or below that threshold, so we either need to go in and design a remedial type of activity to clean it up, or we're good to go. This is an incredibly hot field right now. Uh, You've seen many things on even shows like 60 Minutes, where my firm and other firms like this have come up with these types of um, risk assessments to battle a lot of times between or, or facilitate the battle between the EPA and the government and the companies to try to figure out what needs to be done in a certain area. Loved the work. Absolutely loved it. Highly technical. Leading teams of database administrators, toxicologists, attorneys. After a while though, I really got exposure to the business end of this industry. So the people that would hire us a lot of times back in the mid-90s, they were doing mergers. They were doing acquisitions. Company A wants to buy Company B. Well, wait a minute. Company A says, I don't want to buy a two or three billion dollar liability along with it. Hey, go in and figure it out for us. Do We need to work into the price of the deal. I got exposure to attorneys, to patent law attorneys. I got exposure to expert witnesses. And it really opened my eyes to the business world and said, I really like this stuff. And I could be a good quantitative engineer for the rest of my life, but this stuff is interesting. It's different. It's exciting. And the, probably the, what um, broke, the straw that broke the camel's back was I was working on a project. It's actually on 60 Minutes, so I can talk about it publicly. It's called the WTI, Waste Technologies Incorporated Incinerator, um, in Ohio. It's a hazardous waste incinerator that they built on a hillside about 900 meters away from an elementary school. And we were looking at the risk posed by the activities at that site, paid for by the government, uh, on that elementary school. And I was sitting there about midnight one night, and we were calculating the effective radius of the blast fireball that could occur if the wrong two chemicals under the right conditions were accidentally mixed at this facility. And when you calculate effective radii of death at a distance greater than that school, you've got to scratch your head and say, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? You can be a a pawn in that type of environment. You can be the person who just says, here are the numbers. You go figure out what to do with them. I personally couldn't do that. I said, I really want to take more responsibility for what's going on. The case turned messy. It's still actually being litigated here 16 years later. And I said, I don't like the way that my work personally is being used as a tool in a litigation matter between the government and between private industry. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. I want to go do something different. You see these types of cases all the time. Has anybody read uh, a book that came out about 10 years ago called A Civil Action? That book actually had several members of my firm in it, and it was a case with a tannery up in New York where uh, families were getting cancer, and the cancer was being caused by contaminants released from that facility. And our firm was one of the firms that provided the data and the information that was required to determine whether or not that was posing a risk. Where I was uncomfortable was how that information was being taken and used and manipulated at certain times by the media, by the companies, by the government for their own political agenda. And I said, I'm done. I'm out of it. I've had enough. I want to go do something different. So I said, what's next? I think I going to go back to business school at this point. I really got a taste of the m a work, really enjoyed it. I said, I want to stay technical. I want to stay in a technical field. I want to work for a company who makes products. But I really want to learn more about marketing, more about finance, more about real product development to round out my career and be an effective general manager. Something to think about, uh, once you spend your first three or four or five years out there in your career, on average, people have 11 jobs after they graduate from high school. And if you go get an MBA, and I'm assuming that would be roughly equivalent to this program, the statistics probably aren't there yet, but people spend uh, their time roughly four to five years on average in a job afterwards. They have seven more career changes after the MBA. At some point, too, multiple paths are going to emerge. And you're going to have to have the tools to be able to decide as a new opportunity opens up, do I want to go down path A or path B or path C? As you continue down that path, though, do you want to leverage your core engineering skills? Do you want to pursue general management? You want to start up your own business. You may want to go back and get a JD and go into patent law. You want to return to academics and continue on research. These are questions that I believe you'll probably ask yourself the enti- your entire career. You're not going to figure it out in your first job. You need to be open to explore that. But really let your experiences, let your instincts, let your gut feel and the market help you make these determinations. So. What I basically did was, I said, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I want to do at all. But I know that I'm interested in business. I went back to business school. I said I wanted to stay close to technology. So I entered an executive development program at Sprint. And what it did is it allowed us to rotate for the first three years in different types of functions. I got to do finance. I got to do marketing. I got to do product development, which I'd never done before. And then uh, went on and, and had subsequent roles where I was managing lines of business. The goal was really, though, to gather the experiences I needed to be able to be a good general manager and to be able to eventually own my own business at one point. And that's where I'm kind of at this point. What I want to do next? Got an engineering degree, got an MBA, got about 10 years of work experience. Is it time? For me, it's time. I believe very firmly at this point in time that I want to go back and do my own thing start my own business, invest in a business, or at least find uh, a small startup that I can come in and manage uh, on my own. Here's what I'd like to leave you with. I'm going to give you a little quick top 10 list of things that I think you're going to face and things to think about really as you start your career. Engineers love to learn. They love to tinker. They love to experiment. Take that learning approach when you go out into the world. Seek positions which let you develop new skills. Don't just do what you're good at. Get outside of your comfort zone. You've got to take some risks. Because if you don't, this is, my, this is one of my adages, to tell me if I'm pushing myself hard enough in my job or not. If I'm not failing occasionally, then I'm not taking enough risks. I'm not pushing myself hard enough. When you push yourself to the limit, and especially uh, into an area that you're unfamiliar with, you're going to fail eventually. Set yourself up for that. Let yourself fail. Let yourself experiment. Now is the best time to do it uh, while you're young. And I guarantee you're probably going to be a better person for it uh, in the long run. Number two, don't be a job snob. Get your hands dirty. A lot of times, folks want to get into an engineering firm and get with the hot, sexy new product. Generally speaking, there's going to be a mass exodus from the older, mature products Go into the new products. That a lot of time leaves a lot of opportunity back in the older products where you can really make a name for yourself, you can really shine and really own your own line of business. So as an example, um, I was running the um, product management on the Internet side of the business. It was 2001. That's right when dial-up access, everybody remember dial-up? Dial-up access was pretty much peaking out and DSL and other high-speed uh, access technology, was really coming into play. Everybody in Sprint was saying, all right, dial up, it's peaked, it's dead, it's over, let's go throw all our money into MPLS and into building OC48s and 192s and these types of access conduits. My team looked at that and said, that's great, we realize it's over, we realize dial is not hot, it's not sexy anymore, it's not a growth business, but for the next three or four years, it's not just going to fall off the face of the earth, and we think we can still make a lot of money by doing this. We did this and actually as some of the ventures that we got into failed, we made the company an extra $800 million in EBITDA over the next two years by flying in the face of the conventional wisdom and really an unappealing product, taking over the market in that product space and then correctly exiting that business in 2004 when we sold it off to Level 3. The type of recognition that you get for doing something like that and being able to make money for the company is outstanding. Get your hands dirty. Don't necessarily take the sexiest jobs. Um, They a lot of times provide you the greatest opportunity for recognition for personal growth. As you also go through your career too, make sure that you can come up with a good reasonable explanation for why you take the jobs that you take. There should be a progression, and they should all tie together to a certain extent. Why did you go from finance to marketing? Well, part of marketing is figuring out how to sell products, and I need to learn how to sell products that make money. I need to have the financial acumen to learn how to be a good marketer. Make the connections as you take the different positions in your career. That really gets to the next point, thinking about breadth and depth. Can anybody tell me the name of any single CEO of a large company in this country who has been with that company for 35 or 40 years, has never held any other jobs, and has never done anything different for their entire career. It generally doesn't exist. The days of that one company, one career world are over. Even if you do try to specialize in one functional area, make sure that you understand the breadth of all the pieces that go into that. So for instance, if your goal is to become a CFO, you can't just stay in accounting for 20 or 30 years and be a CFO. You've got to do M&A work, You've got to do controller work. You've got to do decision support work. You probably have to do supply chain management work. You have to do investor relations work. That's what a good CEO does, a good CFO does. You can look at it from a project management perspective. If you're going to be a good project manager, you need to take some time and really learn logistics. You need to learn negotiations with suppliers and with customers. You need to learn Six Sigma process improvement to improve the actual Uh, projects that you're working on. Learn all the different functional aspects that tie it into one bundle and make it a good compelling picture. What I would caution you, though, against is if you cast your net too broadly then somebody looks at your resume a lot of times and says, great, you did that for a while and that for a while and that for a while. So you got a lot of scattered experience, but how does it all tie together? Does it really make a good-looking package uh, for me to hire you as a manager? You don't want to get into that situation where you've cast your net so broadly that you can't link it all back together. Next thing, uh, these few things really involve your behavior at work. Assume the decision is yours unless somebody stops you or tells you otherwise. Being decisive, not falling into a par- uh, basically paralysis by analysis, we call it. These things are respected. They're respected more than I can tell you by the executive leaders in a firm, be aggressive, take chances, pick up fumbles when you see a fumble lying on the ground. I'll do it. I'll figure it out. May have to have a couple of extra people to help me, but I'll figure it out. And remember that it's something that I've always said, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Most people would like to see someone who is aggressive and taking chances and messing up once in a while, as opposed to who's always someone who's always sitting back, and being and waiting to be told what to do. Good leaders don't wait for others to tell you what to do. This one I really like, strategy without execution is a pipe dream. And I say this because I think about the successful CEOs in this world. What do they all do now? If you've ever seen an interview with Bill Gates or Andy Grove or Steve Jobs or um, Brian David, He's the uh, CEO of uh, UTC, you all are familiar with UTC. About a $60 billion company, and they make a few air conditioners and helicopters and jet engines and things of that nature. They all come from an operational background. Are they running math? Are they running equations? Are they designing things today? No. But when they sit there in those rooms and create the strategies, they have the underpinnings to know whether a strategy that they're creating can be executed. You've got to understand both and realize that implementing that strategy is every bit as important as dreaming one up. A lot of times, the person who develops the new concept for a new product um, and then hands it off to be executed, that person's forgotten. It's the people that execute who generally receive the recognition. If you can do both, you've got an incredibly powerful um, set of skills. Learn to lead and to manage people. In some of your classes, have people ever given you that uh, argument, are you a leader or are you a manager? And what's the difference? It's one of those things that you hear about all the time. Nobody can truly define a leader. Nobody can truly define a manager. But there is a distinct difference. Someone who is a good leader can create a compelling vision. They can share that vision with others, and they can influence followers to get something done. A manager is generally the type of person that's doing the tactical day-to-day work, keeping things on track, making sure project deadlines are hit to effectively execute in an environment. You need to learn how to do both. One of the best ways, I think, to be a leader is to learn how to become authentic. The business books, folks, they sell millions and millions of copies, seven, what is it, seven habits Seven highly effective person, so on and so forth. There is no right or wrong answer. Take the tidbits that you learn, that you observe from the business books, wherever it is, and create your own personal style because people will be able to relate to you best if you're coming across as natural, if you're coming across as you, as you're coming across as a human being, not if you walk in every door and say exactly the right thing and sound like you're spouting Stephen Covey all day long. People attach and relate and follow those types of folks better. The other thing, too, that I, I... always loved to tell engineers, and I was guilty of this for a very long time, there's a leadership model that says you can influence people at work primarily through three different paths. Logos, pathos, ethos. Logos is logic. A equals B, B equals C, so A equals C, it means we do it. It's using the numbers. It's using statistics. It's using data to drive your decisions and saying, we're doing this because of A, B, and C. The second way is through ethos basically appealing to a person's sense of right and wrong. We should do this because it's the right thing to do. People get very, very passionate about right and wrong and what's good and what's bad, especially when it comes to areas that can't be quantified. How do you know if this is going to please a customer? You can't really quantify it, but I I know, I feel it's the right thing to do for the customer and that other option is a bad customer experience. It's the wrong thing to do. You can influence people that way. And finally, pathos. It really comes down to emotions, firing people up, getting them energized, showing them that vision of the future, saying, if we can do this, we're going to sell a million new gadgets that are going to blow away the iPod, get people excited about it, rally about it. If you can somehow figure out how to blend all three of those together, then you're going to be much more powerful as an influencer than just saying, a equals B, B equals C, so A equals C. We do it. And running the numbers. Different people are motivated by different things. Try to fit all three of uh, the major categories into your arsenal. Another thing, too, is as you take your career and go from more of an individual contributor role, most of you are going to be hopping right out into analyst roles, into manager roles, very tactical, using a lot of design types of activities. Eventually, as you start going up the executive level, people look at those experiences and say, yeah, you've been successful at doing that, but now I need you to be successful at managing other people, at managing ideas, at creating strategies. And you're going to have to reach a point where you let go of those technical skills. What got you to that point is not what's going to keep you there. The CEOs in our companies these days are not CEOs because they're great at math. They're CEOs because they're great leaders. They know how to identify talent. They know how to develop people. They know how to make good decisions. There comes a point in your career where you start having to transition from the doer to the leader. And you see a lot of careers flame out because people can't let that go. They want to stay technical. They want to stay down on the details. They can't come up enough to create a good strategy and to lead other people. You do this by taking time, whether it's an hour of your day, an hour of your week, maybe it's one executive retreat a month. Take the time to get to know your people, to teach them, to interact with them. Learn how to hire somebody. I guarantee the first two or three people that you hire, you're probably going to look at half of them about two years later and say, why did I hire that person? You'll eventually figure out how to interview well and how to take people and understand what real talent is And see those pitfalls and the different problems that you may have with a certain employee as you interview them. You've got to do it, though. I know it's uncomfortable sometimes. Get good at it, and I guarantee you're going to build a better team. Um, You've got to honestly evaluate people. There's going to be people that work for you that are performing well and those that are underperforming. And one of the toughest things to do is to sit down with an employee in your office and say, you're not performing and give that person honest feedback. Here's examples of why. Here's what I need you to do. You've got to take the time to do that or you're going to drag down the level of your team. Start thinking about these leadership and personnel management types of issues and start working on it. It takes a lifetime to develop and nobody ever becomes great in it. Sitting here at Sprint today, you see the type of financial trouble we're in. Uh, You see the types of things in the papers that are talking about us not being able to execute well. Um, when you generally look at that type of situation environment, you can generally take a look and say, are the leaders effectively executing on their strategy and do they have the right people in the right places to make this company work? You can almost always go back to that and say, let's evaluate the way that we're hiring people, where we're putting people in the company, are they doing the right things? Do we have the right people doing the right things? And what do we need to change? And that's exactly where Sprint is today. We're looking at, at different ways of swapping people into different um, environments. We're letting go of some of our uh, executives. We're hiring new ones from different industries. This is the key decision-making uh, parameter that you're going to need to use when you get 10 to 15 years down in your career. This is something that um, I think has become even more and more important in the Internet age of today. Think about how many people you met for the first time online. You send somebody an email, you're introduced by email, you're introduced by fax. That's the first impression. A lot of times when even a professor, uh, before you even meet them, is going to publish a syllabus online. You read the syllabus, does it make sense, so on and so forth. Your first impression of a lot of people today is not interpersonal. It's in writing or it's on email. Make a good first impression. Take the time to write well. Run your spell check. Run your grammar check. If you're worried about it, get your office mate to take a look at it also. You really differentiate yourself by being a good communicator, developing executive presence, being able to give good presentations. The thing that I always um, remember too is when someone has written something poorly, they've made grammatical mistakes, or what they're saying just doesn't make logical sense, especially if you've never met the person known before, what kind of impression does that leave? in your mind about that person. It's not very positive. Take the time, don't make that mistake. Take that time, especially in a digital world today, to make a good impression with your writing and with your communications. This next one too, we're almost finished. um, And I think these next two are probably the most important. You're gonna reach these decision points we've talked about in your career. You're gonna need advice, you're gonna need counseling. People always talk about networks. What are networks? Most folks think that networks are friends, people that you met in MEMP program, people that uh, you went to high school with, went to college with, and these are networks. I would argue that those are networks. They're contacts. But what you really need to do is think about three different types of people that you interact with. You have the general networking folks that are conduits of information. You call up your old buddy and say, yeah, I know you're working for GM right now. Does they have any jobs available here and here? Oh yeah, here. Let me forward you a job uh, posting. That's great. That's networking. That's getting information from other people. There's mentors, which may be your professors, and hopefully you will find someone to mentor you as you get into a job that has been through or worked, been through experiences similar to what you anticipate uh, interacting, or it's been um, with that company for a long period of time. and can tell you about the culture. Find a mentor, and these people give you advice. They give you guidance. They, give you, they teach you lessons that can make you a better person. A champion, though, is someone who will stand up and say, that person is good. I will hire that person. I will stake my reputation that that is the type of person that you want on your team. Mentors and networks don't necessarily have that requirement. These are the folks that will get you a job, get you an opportunity and you do it by working with these people and demonstrating who you are, demonstrating your effectiveness, proving your worth. Realize that folks, all the contacts you make fall into different buckets and are good for different things. Make sure you, early on in your career, build champions. That's what'll help open up opportunities for you as you go uh, forward. Last, especially in today's world, anybody heard of Sarbanes-Oxley? SOX 404, these types of things, especially you guys that are going into investment making. We've had such a problem in our country with integrity at the senior executive leadership level with so many companies. And we're finally addressing it. We're putting dirty executives in jail. We're taking companies and we're, we're basically implementing stringent reporting guidelines through Sarbanes Oxley to make sure that people are doing the right thing. Let me tell you. I've seen it too many times. Trust is, you cannot put a value on trust in a workplace. And once you've lost, or people have lost trust or lost faith in your integrity, you're never going to get it back. It's done. Do whatever you can do to maintain an air of accountability, of trust, of someone who stands up for doing the right thing. And you have your own meters to figure this out. If it feels wrong, if something feels wrong to you, then it probably is. It's not necessarily a black and white in every situation, but you've got to have to make a black or white, black or white decision. If it feels wrong, don't do it. Don't put yourself in that type of situation. Um, people will follow those folks who they trust and they admire. So make sure you don't ever put yourself in a situation where your integrity can be compromised. Finally, I just throw these up at the end. Um, You know what? You're not going to be happy in life. You're not going to be happy in a career unless you're doing something you really love. Um, My significant other who was nice enough to come with me here, uh, we had this discussion. She's also a uh, director at Sprint. We had this discussion on a daily basis. How does our work world affect who we are once we get outside of it? Would a different company give us a, a different environment in the work? Would it affect for better or for worse? The way that we live and the way we interact with each other outside of work. Absolutely. Do something that you love. Pick an industry you love. Pick a function that you love, and you will be much happier and you'll produce your best work uh, if you can identify that and do that. Spend the time, experiment to figure out what that is. And finally, I know it's really tough to sit here, you know, when you guys are spending 100 hour weeks on classes, schoolwork, building your networks, figuring out what to do with your life. It's all about the career right now. Don't forget there are friends out there. There's family out there. And there's other things that you need to do to keep a good balance in life. Also to make yourself happy. Don't ever sell yourself. Don't sell your soul to the job. Because eventually it's going to come back to bite you. I've got too many friends. Um, try. I was trying to think about this earlier. I probably have 15 to 16 good contacts on Wall Street that... Uh, graduated from business school with me in the same class. I know of two of them that are still on Wall Street. And most of them left because they burned out. They couldn't take it anymore, they couldn't do it anymore. They weren't happy. They weren't happy living in New York and wanted to go back somewhere else, or they weren't happy with putting in 110 hours, or they didn't like not having a social life, or they said, you know, I really wanted money, and then I found out money wasn't really that important. These are the types of things that happen keep the balance that you need in your life and make your career decisions with that balance in mind. Don't get to the point where you make a a move or pick a job totally 100% based on your career and not the other things that are important. So this is just the general, uh, my general advice, things that I've seen happen to me uh, through my career. Wanted to leave a lot of time here at the end for you to really ask some probing questions. I'll answer anything as openly, as honestly as I possibly can. And once again, my disclaimer, I'm not an attorney, but I've been around so many of them, I always have to do this. My disclaimer is I've taken a lot of these thoughts and ideas from a lot of different people, and I owe them a lot for teaching, teaching me uh, an effective way to, to go through and manage one's career. Some self-help books are great. Others are terrible. You need to go assemble your own set of rules to live by. I was just throwing out a few ideas that I had, uh, that I live by with my work. There is no right or wrong answer. Create your own path, create your own style, and uh, you'll be the happiest and most effective by doing it that way. So, let me open up the questions about your next job, about specific companies, about some of the decisions you're wrestling with today. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go into project management versus should I go to Wall Street? Whatever it might be. Do we do we need to – do we have a roaming microphone or anything like that, or how does that generally work? You just, so just speak, speak up. up. We're good? Okay. Please. Um, I had a question about entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you
0: were uh, looking at uh, a venture stepping
1: out on your own. Yes. So uh, one part of the question is, can you tell us more about what you're planning? If it, if it, uh, Absolutely. And, and the second would be,
0: um, how much experience do you think is – or recommended people
1: are, is, is it at all people step out on their own? That's, a, that's a great, great question. Uh, what I'm thinking about doing, actually, especially since I live in Kansas at this point in time, I'm not uh, Oh, great. Perfect. I'll do that for the, for the next person. Um, I've lived in 15, 16 states. I'm not a Midwestern guy. Uh, I'd like to get back to East Coast at some point, but right now I happen to be in the hotbed of biomass. People are trying to figure out how to convert um, raw materials, waste products, agricultural products into some type of alternative energy and fuel. I I learned a lot about that um, when I was working for the LCRA down in Texas, that oil exploration production plant. It fascinates me. I'd like to get closer to really creating my own product and doing something that's good for the environment. And good for society. Um, so, I'm thinking about getting back uh, and looking at some startups and things that are occurring in that space. I may not end up there. Uh, but I found I've got this burning kind of feeling inside me that says, you've done the corporate thing, you've checked the boxes, you've learned A, B, C, D, and E, and what are you gonna do with them? You're gonna keep playing the corporate game the rest of your life, or you're gonna go out and do something on your own? That's exactly where I am and what I wanna do. As far as timing goes, I had an entrepreneurship professor in business school say, if you don't become an entrepreneur within five to 10 years after getting out, then you never are. I, said, what? I, I know a lot of folks that are like 50 or 55 years old that try to buy a business. And his basic response was the golden handcuffs get to you. You get out, you get successful, you get comfortable, you get used to a lifestyle. You don't want to go back and risk. Um, your job, you may have a family at that point. You're now putting your family, your children at risk financially if you start up too late. Um, most of the people who do go back and get an entrepreneurship later in life, you'll notice generally are financially secure and sound and don't have to worry about that piece. So there's, there's, a, there's an area in the middle uh, where you get into that point where you're putting yourself at financial risk. Never buy a business with your own money. That's like gold entrepreneurship rule 101. There's plenty of investors, there's plenty of banks, money is free, it's fast, it's easy right now. Never buy it with your own money so you don't have to put yourself at too much financial risk. And do it while you're young and energetic and have 100 hours a week to spend on it uh, before you get to that point where you're married and you got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and you can't do it. Or you're gonna end up waiting later in life. Luckily right now I'm not married yet, have the time, I have a supportive significant other who is pushing me to do the same thing. Um, so we're at that point where it's still okay for me. The other thing too is, I believe the success rate, if I remember correctly, is about 25 to 30% on your first startup, uh, of it making it more than two years, if I remember the statistics correctly. The success for your second startup doubles. Go screw up now, you know, take a chance now. Find someone else in a small business and learn from them. Watch them do something right, watch them do something wrong, uh, and you're going to be much more successful about it. The thing I would say though is, if you haven't had any work experience whatsoever, I'd really suggest hooking up with someone who has complementary skill sets. You may have the engineering side and the knowledge down, but if you really don't know how to finance something, how to operate something, all the legal complications, Make sure you partner with someone who has that experience and knows that, who can support it. Uh, Or else, I I see it all the time. I'm uh, chairman of the board of directors for the high tech incubator in Kansas City. See folks come, especially engineers, all the time with great ideas who have no idea how to commercialize it. And that's, I hope, the value of this program helps you start thinking about how to commercialize something, not just how to develop it. So, find other folks that can uh, augment. Your own deficiencies. Figure out what your deficiencies are, which you're not good at. Personally, I hate accounting. I can't do it. I know if in my business I'm going to have to have someone with a strong accounting background because I have no tolerance for it, so on and so forth. That's a deficiency. Start finding those pieces to build a complete business, which is much harder to do if you haven't been out there for a little while and can't hook up with folks who do have that commercial aspect to them. Next, I, some, I think somebody right over here had a question, Craig. Okay. Um, who is a leader that are like who to use uh, like under a book? Did you read my application to Duke? <laughs> 1989, the question, one of the questions, one of the essay questions was... Um, Define an honorable person. Feel free to give examples if necessary. So I kind of figured out people are going to write about parents, relatives, Martin Luther King, JFK, so on and so forth, right? And I wrote mine on Dr. Spock. So Dr. Spock, and I actually went back, watched the movies, gave examples. So the more modern manifestation for you guys is Jean-Luc Picard. I look at that guy though and and I think about him as a leader and if you watch the way on the show that he interacts with his folks, he treats them like people, he treats them like family, yet there's still a level of authority there that's still maintained. His people admire him, they follow him, they look up to him, yet you see in a lot of the shows he is also vulnerable. He's a human being. He takes chances, he makes decisions, he fails sometimes and he knows how to pick himself back up. I, obviously, it's idealized, and it's, but that type of person who can know how to influence people, who has no fear in leadership and has no fear in making mistakes, and feels free to do so, and actually comes across as a human being sometimes, uh, and lets his flaws show, that's, that type of example to me is exactly the type of person to look for. I'd love to go be William Riker and be uh, number one. For uh, Jean-Luc Picard out there going across the galaxy. Absolutely. I've never been able to think of a better example of an ideal leader than what I saw on that show. How's that for Tech Geek? Yeah. They make sure I completely understand the question. So how do you you're not always able to speak up when you see something wrong? You're not always able to own that right or wrong decision? For instance, the let's say your
0: company is uh it's fighting its group of
1: customers. Okay. Okay. You want to
0: talk uh giving way. there are instances like this where you're supposed to be cut you high mm
1: good point. It comes back to influence, and it reminds me of a situation that I was uh, hearing about early today where there was an instance where uh, somebody needed to buy a product uh, with Sprint and they even had an external opinion that said, this is the wrong thing to do. Yet, this person's uh, boss was dead set that, nope, we're going down this path. The balance that you have to have uh, is, number one, pick your battles. You're not going to win every battle. Make sure that you know which ones are important and which ones are not as important and which ones you can uh, let slide because if you try to fight everything, then you're going to win nothing. If you pick the few battles that you want to fight, you can do that. It really comes back to influence, and it comes back to that Logos, Pathos, Ethos thing I was talking about. Try to logically show with as many facts analyses, as much data as you can that a decision doesn't work. Bring in the pathos and the ethos side and learn how to argue, uh, almost like an attorney. This is right or wrong because of this. Try to influence others. Not that you're necessarily right, but that there maybe there are some alternatives that weren't considered. And um, generally speaking, I haven't seen too many people fired for... Um, insubordination or disagreeing with his or her boss, as long as you can make a clear and compelling argument uh, to do so. This is one of the ways that I actually frame all of my presentations uh, when I'm presenting something. I actually ran the credit department at Sprint for a long time, and there there were always right-wrong decisions that were very, very gray. And we ought, we'd always throw the analyses. Here's what the data say, but it kind of contradicts customer satisfaction, so on and so forth. I'll give you five alternatives. Here are the alternatives we went through. Here are the pros and cons of each alternative. We recommend this one and bring that into a general forum where you can discuss it. And I, I think if you create the situation that says uh, with your boss or your peers, let's sit down at the table, let's look at all the alternatives, let's look at other ways of doing this, that in general, you're not going to get fired for taking a view that's different from your boss as long as you have a good material basis to back it up. I haven't seen that happen very often, actually. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned earlier in the presentation about... Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, how do you weigh out the
1: conflict between being happy, being a dealer, and and being a person to be a general manager? That's a perfect question, actually, for any type of engineering environment. Do You have to be a, a good general manager and executive leader. Absolutely not. If you like doing something, certain type of analysis, certain type of function, like I've got folks that work for me when I ran credit that had been doing credit operations, which is literally very detailed statistical modeling, for 20 years. There's this one guy who was the best I'd ever seen at it. Wanted to promote him, wanted to bring him up, say, I I want you to be my backfill when I leave. And he basically said, no, I like what I do. I don't really like managing people. I don't like making some of those decisions. I'd love to get in uh, and, and get my hands dirty. This guy is invaluable to sprint. He will never be fired, and he is, ex- he is extremely happy with where he is. You've got to kind of decide that for yourself, um, and I think the way you do that is experiment. You put yourself sometimes into a role where you have the opportunity to manage people and see if you like it, and if you don't like it, you get into another role where you don't, and you get back into the heavy analytics or the heavy design side. There's no, there is no right or wrong. There is nothing wrong with taking a career and being a design engineer your entire career. And as a matter of fact, if you look at a lot of the folks that are at the, uh, the tops of big companies, Andy Grove is probably the best example. That guy was in operations for 30 years, uh, hardcore operations before he took over uh, Intel and then you know, subsequently stepped down. But that, um, for me personally, what I've found is I've been able to stay close enough the facts and figures and data in a high-tech industry, that it, it still gives me the rush. And when my employees come and present analyses to me, I'll dive down in the details with them and sometimes say, oh, show me that Monte Carlo simulation. Show me the data on it real quick. Oh, OK. I got my fix. That's what I needed. And, and then and then pull yourself back up, though, and so realize that you're responsible for being the decision maker um, in that type of environment. There's no right or wrong, uh, like I said. Everybody's goal can't be to be CEO or head counsel or managing director at uh, at a Wall Street firm. Do the experimentation you need to figure out what makes you happy and keep going. Personally, what makes me happy is a mix right halfway in between. If I can provide strategic direction and good influence and good leadership and keep close enough the data to keep my data analysis geek side happy, perfect. That's exactly where I want to be. And find the company that allows you to, and the role that allows you to do it. But the only way I think to really get there is to do two or three or four or five different things to really figure out. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, don't really have that much of a backup plan in mind, to be honest. Uh, that's one of the things that is so exciting about this time is, is potentially going out on my own, and I um, don't have much of a backup plan. I think it's going to make me work a little bit harder to make sure it's a success. I think actually the backup plan, though, is that network, those champions those mentors that I've had, is keeping in touch with them, keeping in contact with them, um, whether it be a phone call once a year, whether it be going out and visiting them when you go to give a presentation somewhere, keep those fresh, tell them what you're doing. Say, hey, I'm starting this up, can you give me a piece of advice? I know you've done something similar or you faced a time where you had a, a legal issue or you faced an accounting probe and what did you do in that situation? Use those opportunities to reach out and connect, stay connected with those folks. And if something doesn't work out in two or three years, you've still got those relationships ripe and you say, you know what? I, uh, I tried it, didn't like it, think I wanna get back in industry. You'll be able to hop right back in. Uh, I see it happen all the time. You'll be able to pop right back in. People, especially in industry and consulting, they respect entrepreneurs. They respect people with guts like I was saying earlier, take risks. They respect people who are willing to take risks, because risk takers are innovators. So I've seen a lot of folks that have come back into industry from an entrepreneurial career and they're welcome with open arms, and a lot of times they are uh, elevated very quickly through a company. So I'm not really worried. If if something I do fails, I've got lots of contacts uh, where I can get right back into uh, the corporate environment pretty easily. You need to take the time to build that and to nurture it and make sure it doesn't die. Don't uh, go try to start up a company you know, on a remote island and then expect to show back up in five years and say hi to your friends. Oh, can you give me a job? Keep it fresh. With that, what else? I'd like to uh, thank our speaker. Okay. Thank you. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, If there are any more questions that I had to cut off, I saw a hand over there uh, at the minute. Why don't you come down afterwards and
0: talk? Okay, great, thank you. Absolutely, I'll
1: stick around as long as anybody wants to talk.